Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the College Futures Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, this week, as I don't have to tell you, President-elect Joe Biden announced his 20-person education transition team and State Board of Education President Linda Darling-Hammond was named to head it. Her name had also been floated as a possible pick for Secretary of Education, but she says she doesn't want the job. She wants to stay here in California and continue the agenda that she's been working on with Governor Newsom. While quite a few of you told us that you were disappointed that Linda won't be going to Washington, one person who welcomed the news was Governor Newsom. He told us that Darling Hammond is a vital leader in his administration and is thrilled that she will continue to, as he put it, architect and drive our vision for education in California. So today we'll look at Biden's education plan and we'll talk with Martha Kenner. She's a former chancellor of of a community college district in California and she went on to Washington to be President Obama's undersecretary of education. And we'll continue our look at a pressing question in California, when or if students will return to school for in-person instruction. Three counties this week went back into the dreaded purple category, and that will disrupt their plans to bring students back. Districts like Elk Grove Unified, which is near Sacramento. We'll talk to Chris Hoffman, the district superintendent, a bit later in the podcast. But first, let's talk about Biden's education plans. Lewis, give us a sense of what you think he has in mind for preschool and K-12. Well, I'll try to do it, John, briefly, because it's a very extensive plan. One of the most expansive plans I've seen in any president in all the years that I've been following it. Uh, Quite an extensive pre-K plan. He wants to provide all three- and four-year-olds with access to high-quality preschools. He wants to offer tax credits of up to $8,000 per child for low- and middle-income families to pay for childcare. And he wants to expand childcare to after-school, weekend, and during the summer as well. Ka-ching, ka-ching, Lewis. I I see those dollars, and we haven't even gotten to K-12 yet. He has a very strongly pro-teacher agenda. He wants to increase funding for teacher mentoring and professional development. He wants to make sure there's funds for teachers to earn additional certification in high demand areas such as special ed or bilingual education. Wants to strengthen the public service loan forgiveness program to help teachers who work in high-need schools, pay off their student loans. He wants to provide full funding for special education. And I think uh, that would mean uh, the federal government would pay at least 40% of the share of special ed compared to the measly 14% that it now currently provides. And, of course, he wants to triple the amount of aid going to low-income kids through Title I. And there's a big question as to how much or if any of this agenda will be implemented because so much depends on what happens in Georgia in the runoffs for those two Senate seats. If the Senate remains in Republican hands, as it seems is likely to be the case, don't count on a big part of this very, very ambitious agenda becoming reality. Well, one thing you can count on if if Linda Darling-Hammond is part of it will be teacher training and probably teacher residencies. You know, you remember in Governor Newsom's budget in January, there was hundreds of millions of dollars going towards training and teacher residencies, and he credited her for that idea. 
Well, John, let's move on now to post-secondary, which is also a big part of the Biden agenda. We're fortunate to have with us today Martha Cantor, who is CEO of College Promise, a national nonprofit that is building support for free, universal, and accessible college education. She was President Obama's Undersecretary of Higher Education. Before that, she served as Chancellor of the Foothill De Anza Community College District in Los Altos and Cupertino. She also has worked closely with First Lady-elect Jill Biden. Welcome, Martha. Thanks for having me. So, Martha, you did work with Jill Biden when you were Undersecretary of Education. Tell us about the role she played and what makes her a powerful advocate for teachers and community colleges. Well, first and foremost, she's a teacher. And so to be an advocate for teachers is in her blood. That's what she does. And that's what she did every single day in office in her official role as second lady of the U.S. I got to work with her early on and saw firsthand her visits to K-12 schools, higher education, meetings with community college students, talking to higher education leaders, and bringing in whole communities to make a difference to do more in the classroom in our communities. What do you think her role might be in a new administration as it relates to uh, education? She'll have two or three priorities. One, they've already said very clearly, they want to continue to build on the power and reputation of community colleges as a viable higher education opportunity for millions of students. I'm expecting she'll take on her commitment, which is longstanding for the entire family to veterans and military families. And then I bet she'll surprise us with something else. Well, you mentioned more visibility for community colleges than ever before, probably. So how do you hope that that translates into programs and funding at the federal level and perhaps persuade people to rethink the role and importance of community colleges? I think she will be the voice to say, center higher education opportunity on pathways to, through, and beyond community colleges. And I'm excited about that because her husband's, the the president-elect's higher education agenda, talks about increasing the federal role, which will translate in policy, hopefully to a federal-state partnership. Uh, But the other thing they are requesting in the plan is to significantly increase Pell Grants. So there will be a focus on vulnerable students, high-need students, students from the areas of the country that have fewer and now far fewer resources to get the opportunity to go to college. How do you think this is going to play out? President-elect Biden has these very ambitious plans, not only for community colleges, but for the entire education system. Is it going to be possible to get much of this enacted? Well, you know, when I joined the government, I had no experience at that level. And looking back in retrospect, it was remarkable that we were able to significantly increase Pell Grant opportunities for low-income students to get a formula in place, to actually have that formula continuing through the second term. And it has continued to this day. So things are possible. I think where the big issue is going to be is in terms of spending, because a lot of the president-elect Biden's proposals are going to cost money. And so that would require Congress to go along with that. 
Senator Vasconcellos was a mentor to me for decades. I remember that he turned to me one day because I said when we were advocating for handicap program funding, now we would call it disability rights funding. He said, Martha, there's always money for the highest priorities in the land. The land in that conversation being California. Um, and so there is revenue if it levels up to the higher priorities. And that's what you want to see. And that's why we have advocates and that's why we have public narratives. And that's why we have local and state and national conversations. If we want to do it, we will. And Martha, looking ahead, can you imagine yourself playing a role, a helpful role in the next uh, administration in either a formal or informal way? I will always help any administration that is serious about improving education because it's an unending quest. We were first in the world in the number of college-educated, well-prepared students for the careers ahead. And the careers are going to be so very different in terms of the tools of the trade that we're going to need for success. And we need to just embrace this, learn it, and do it better than anyone else. But we also need to collaborate a whole, whole lot more than we compete. Well, thank you, Martha. We've been speaking with Martha Cantor, who is CEO of National Nonprofit College Promise, former Undersecretary of Education under the Obama administration, and as many of you remember, a long esteemed Chancellor of Foothill and De Anza Community College in California. Martha, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. We also have EdSource reporter Ashley Smith on the line. She's known Martha for quite a long time and covered these issues going way back to the Obama administration. Welcome, Ashley. Hey, Lewis. Hi, John. So, Ashley, uh, Martha referred to Joe Biden's plans to increase Pell Grant funding and actually to allow using some of it for non-tuition expenses like housing and food. What else is he proposing? One of the major initiatives that President-elect Biden has talked about is providing two years of community college free or at least without any type of debt for students who who want to get a degree, who, who want to earn a certificate and get a job that pays them a living wage. And Ashley, that's for all students, not just uh, low-income students. Because in California, I mean, if you're low-income, you pretty much don't have to pay tuition in community colleges. It was pretty low here in California. Yes, that's true. It would be for um, any student who wants to go to community college for two years. America's College Promise was what the program was called back in 2015. But under Biden, his plan would be to create a federal state partnership. So essentially, the federal government would cover the majority of the cost. I believe they would cover 75 percent of it. And the state's would make up the rest or however they would like to pay for these programs to make sure that students could go to community college for up to two years without paying tuition. Not that clear where the cash-strapped states would come up with the money. But what about four-year colleges? I know that Biden has pretty ambitious plans there too, right? Yes. Uh, so this is probably great news for any person who still has student debt <laughs> that Joe Biden did propose eliminating about $10,000 in student loans and undergraduate and graduate student debt relief. He also would go back to approving the public service loan forgiveness program, which is something that under the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos, they essentially denied almost every application for public service loan forgiveness. 
I gather he also has pretty ambitious plans to subsidize tuition for those students attending public universities and historically black universities. Uh, what What's he proposing there? So Biden has proposed essentially making tuition free at colleges and universities for any family that makes below one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. And this is essentially the same plan that Senator Bernie Sanders had proposed making. And it would be huge, <laughs> huge for, for many working families uh, across the country. And usually expensive, right? It's hard to imagine how that could happen. Yes, it would be very expensive. Well, actually, a lot of that will depend on what happens in Congress. But there are some short-term actions that the president can take as well, whether rescinding uh, executive orders, imposing new ones. And then we have the whole issue of DACA out there, right? So what might the administration do in the first 90 days? Yes. Uh, in a Biden administration, he could issue an executive order reinstating the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which essentially would protect, um, I, I believe it's over 400,000 undocumented immigrant students. They lost those protections under the Trump administration. And that we've heard from President-elect Biden would be a priority. Well, we've been talking with Ashley Smith, EdSource Higher Education reporter. Thanks for being with us today, Ashley. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Lewis, with or without a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate, school districts are anxious to know whether... President Biden will be able to navigate a stimulus package with more money for preschool K-12 and for higher ed. Meanwhile, there's this ever-changing question in California, which is when or if kids will be able to go back to school for in-person instruction. This week, three counties, Sacramento, San Diego, and Stanislaus, were given the dreadful purple rating, which means that if you haven't brought kids back to school already, then you're out of luck. You have to wait until your county is back in the red zone, which is the next lowest, at least two weeks before you can think about bringing the rest of students back to school. So what that's done in these three counties is disrupted plans, or at least put on hold and in some cases put on hold indefinitely plans to bring kids back to school in quite a few districts. As we mentioned earlier, one of them is Elk Grove Unified near Sacramento. It has 65,000 students. It's the fifth largest in California. And we're pleased to have with us Chris Hoffman. He's the superintendent in Elk Grove. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you very much. So the big question that so many school districts are facing is bringing kids back for in-person instruction. Your county went into purple this week. Wondering to what extent that has affected your plans. Yeah, a huge impact. So we actually had an agreement with our teachers and and our board to bring kids back if we were red in January, and that was moving along fine. We actually also had an agreement in place that if we had moved to the orange tier, we were going to open up schools in November and or December, depending on that timeline. We're actually very excited about that. We were, as a county, a week away from entering the orange tier, and we really thought we were going to have kids back in schools maybe as early as November 17th would have been the earliest date that could have happened. 
But red continued, and then now we're purple, so we're not in that business of being able to open schools. To what extent were parents and kids in your district wanting to come back? Because obviously there's still health concerns, regardless of what color your county is rated. Well, I have seven board members, and they all had different opinions. I have 3,500 teachers. They all had different opinions. And I have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of parents, and they all had different opinions. And that's, that's just the reality. There's no set opinion. But what we had built and what we will build moving forward is choice for our kids. So our families are going to have the opportunity to stay in distance learning. When it's safe to bring kids back, uh, families will have the opportunity to bring their kids back to school. Uh, We will have an array of opportunities and options for our families. We've committed to distance learning option for our families the rest of this school year and ideally an in-person option as well. So we'll, we'll meet the needs of our families where they are. Do you think you'll change your strategies in between now and January's focus on bringing in small groups for small group instruction or perhaps approaching with tutoring or doing other things now that you don't know when you're going to come back? Yeah, we actually already have those in place. So we've been working uh, through our ACES programs, our after-school and safety grants, and we've been bringing small groups of kids at 17 of our schools are already currently working, um, and they are engaging with their regular teacher through the distance learning platform, but they have additional staff in the classroom to support them and provide additional support. So we already have that in place. And now that this will be delayed, we'll look at um, opportunities to expand additional opportunities for kids to come back as well. The CARES funding from the federal government, most of that expires on December 31st. You won't open schools until minimum January. Will you have enough money to open and run schools for the rest of the year if you don't get any more federal money? I mean, there was a big portion that will end December 30th, and we're aware of that. There are a good portion of it that we can use all year long. What we've done with the uh, with the initial piece, that with the expiration date, is really ramped up our technology and other pieces that will end up paying dividends for us uh, for years to come. So we've effectively um, used the funds that we that we knew had the expiration date to get things we needed right away. But some of the employee, we've added nursing services at every one of our schools, and we're using the the year long funding to fund those kinds of things. In terms of if you don't come back a minimum of January, and of course we don't know what's going to happen between now and January, do you think that there will be among teachers and parents a feeling like at this point, do remote learning because a vaccine is coming at some point in the spring that, you know, this feeling that give up on this year for in-person instruction? Yeah, well, we're not giving up, period. We're committed to providing the absolute best learning opportunities that we have in our current reality with with distance learning. But I do believe the further you go, there will be more and more people that will say, you know what, this has worked to this point. It's safe. I know my kids are safe. And so I'm, I'm more and more families will probably choose to stay in this mode. That wouldn't surprise me at all. We, we want to get our kids back at some point. There's so many benefits to having them uh, with us in person. So we'll see. Trying to predict it. The only thing I know is I'll be wrong. Well, thank you so much. I've been talking with uh, Chris Hoffman, Superintendent of Elk Grove Unified. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate it very much. Be safe. You too. I have to say one thing, John, that seems a bit crazy is that schools are allowed to stay open even in counties that are purple if they were already open before the counties were reclassified as purple. But if they hadn't opened, they can't open now until the county gets out of the purple zone. It just seems to me that if you're purple, it's either safe for kids to be back in school or not. 
Well, you know, it's all based on infection rates. And the fact is, you know, schools flip it back and forth. And I think that's what the intent is. You know, if you're constantly going back and forth, they won't know what to do at all. And so I guess the point is you have to be really careful and monitor closely. And it's you can close if you want. But for those who are doing a good job and we'll see what happens in three weeks, you just can't close and then open three weeks later. It's a difficult decision, but I know why they made that rule. Well, that may be true, John, but we also are moving into the so-called long dark winter. Infection rates are going up. And I think this is going to put a crimp perhaps uh, for the next few months on bringing more kids back to school. No, I agree with you, but even under the purple zone, schools could bring back small groups of students, as Superintendent Huffman mentioned. And that's really important because there's so many kids who are just not connected, foster kids, kids who are doing really poorly. And so at least then districts can bring, even in purple, these students back for small group instruction. Good reminder, John. And of course, there's still the K-6 waivers that school districts can still apply for. Yeah, exactly, Lewis. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please consider donating to our annual news match campaign, which whatever you donate to us is worth triple to Ed Source. Go to our website and you'll find the donate button there. Lewis, it's a good deal. Triple the amount of money that you donate and we would really benefit from that. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>